Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We often hear about crime stories in the early stages of an investigation, when they're shrouded in mystery, and then again when they slowly unravel years later in a courtroom. But what happens when we examine these cases from crime to court case? Would we potentially see a larger issue at hand? And would it cause us to remember the victims, maybe in a different way? Working as a criminal justice reporter in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada for eight years, I've covered many cases involving female homicide victims. Saskatchewan had the highest rate of intimate partner violence and domestic violence in Canada in 2018, according to Stats Canada. The percentage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in our province is also one of the highest in Canada. And the rate of femicide, the killing of women and girls primarily but not exclusively by men, exceeds the national average. This podcast series details the stories of four women, their lives, deaths, and the criminal cases that followed, in hopes of ensuring they are never forgotten. I saw it, but it didn't really register. I was probably a couple miles from the farm now, and it just, something was nagging at me to go back. Carol had recently come out west to work in the construction industry. She had been working in Alberta, but she's actually from a small village in Newfoundland called Mattis Point. I knew the area, so I just felt that I had to go out and help if I could some way or another. This case has actually spanned most of my career as a journalist when I started covering it back in 2011. It was a high-profile missing person case that gripped the province, becoming a homicide case and then a cold case, until some powerful evidence changed everything. I'm Bree McAdam, criminal justice reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and you're listening to She's Gone, stories of female homicide victims in Saskatchewan from crime to court case. My producer, Ashley Trask, joins me for episode two, part one, of the disappearance and death of Carol King, a story that begins in small town Saskatchewan. Technically, Herschel is a village about 150 kilometers southwest of Saskatoon and about 25 minutes northwest of Rosetown. The farming community is actually nestled down in a valley. In 2011, around 60 people called Herschel home. There's a post office and a town office, and there used to be an elementary school. It was turned into a museum to display dinosaur fossils that were found in the area. You can imagine that this is the kind of place that doesn't really expect a lot of newcomers. So it was somewhat surprising and unique when Carol King moved to the community in 2009. She had been working in Alberta, but she's actually from a small village in Newfoundland called Mattis Point. Carol had recently come out west 
to work in the construction industry. What else do we know about Carol King? From what I can gather, Carol liked traveling and taking photos. Her sister Brenda said she took her camera almost everywhere she went. In her many photos, Carol is often wearing sunglasses and halter tops. She's smiling with sun-kissed skin. Her sandy-colored hair is often swept back in a ponytail. In 2011, she was 40 years old. She lived alone on an acreage just outside of Herschel. Her house was one of those prefabricated new builds, a bungalow with gray siding and four long rectangular glass windows in the front. Just behind the house were two white quonsets, or outbuildings as they're commonly referred to. The property had clusters of trees, but it wasn't completely hidden from the gravel road that ran parallel. Carol was at her house when, in the early afternoon of August 6, 2011, she spoke with her sister Brenda on the phone about an appointment she had later that day. Brenda was living in Nova Scotia at the time. Carol told Brenda that she was going to the local RCMP detachment in nearby Rosetown. She talked about seeing people prowling around her property and was going to report it to police. This was the last conversation Brenda would ever have with her sister. Later that day, it's believed Carol grabbed her purse and car keys and left her house for her 5 p.m. appointment. But she never showed up. Okay, but people miss appointments all the time, and she would have been home by herself. So how did anyone know that something was wrong? When Brenda tried calling Carol two hours later, her sister's cell phone was turned off. Now, this was very unusual. These women spoke nearly every day, and Carol never, ever shut her phone off. The next morning, Brenda called RCMP and asked them to check on her sister. Police said she wasn't home, but that the doors of one of her quonsets were left wide open. Brenda filed a missing person report, and three days later, she was in Saskatchewan to help organize a grassroots search for Carol. I still remember this day. Carol's disappearance was all over the local news, and it was a big deal that her sister came all the way from Nova Scotia to help with the search. And you might remember that the community of Herschel came out in a huge way, too. People got together to walk across fields in these long lines, shoulder to shoulder, searching for any clues as to where Carol might be. It was August, so remember this is harvest time in Saskatchewan, and people were spending long days out in their fields. The first significant discovery came from police on August 10th, 2011, so that's four days after Carol disappeared. Officers found her silver PT cruiser in a slough not far from her house. The car was discovered right side up, but facing the opposite direction of how you would expect to find it. So the front of the car was facing the road instead of away from it. Police even drained the slough in search of any other clues. I went out to the area where the car was found, and I remember there was an RCMP officer stationed on the gravel road as a sort of barricade. But he did point to a bluff of trees off the road and told me that the slough was behind it which you couldn't actually see from the road. This was quintessential rural Saskatchewan, spacious yet remote. Back in Herschel, I went to the post office to ask who I should talk to about Carol's disappearance. 
The woman who worked there happened to be her closest friend in town. She confirmed what we later heard from Brenda, that Carol had an appointment with RCMP the day she disappeared. And Carol's friend had a strong suspicion about who was involved. A week passed, but still no sign of Carol. At this point, her family has offered a $25,000 reward for any information that would help find her. Okay, so her car shows up in a slew and people are searching through fields? Do people think she was alive? Well, knowing her sister and where she was going the day she disappeared, Brenda made it very clear at the time that she believed Carol had been abducted. But as in all missing persons cases, there was that hope that she was alive until somebody found her body. It's Kevin Booth, K-E-V-I-N-B-O-O-T-H. I was born and raised for the first 12 years of my life in Rosetown, and then we moved out to the farm at Herschel. I don't know, I just had this feeling that I grew up in that area right where Carol disappeared or was reported to have disappeared. I grew up in that area, I snowmobiled, I motorcycled. I knew the area, so I just felt that I had to go out and help if I could some way or another. On August 27th, so this is now three weeks after Carol was last heard from, which at the time, Ash, you might remember, seemed like an eternity for everyone involved in this case. On that day, Kevin Booth had a feeling that he just couldn't shake. As he said, he grew up on a farm about six kilometers northeast of Herschel. At the time, no one lived on the property. The current owners were just leasing it out as farmland. It was a Saturday, and Kevin felt compelled to go out to the empty property, even though he had never met Carol. I had borrowed a quad from one of the companies I work, that has a rental building in our company. They lent me a quad. I loaded it up in the truck and went out to Rosetown. I was going to pick up my brother. We were going to go out, just the two of us. There was no formal searches organized that day. So my brother and I were going to go out, and as it happened, he got delayed so he wasn't able to join me so I just drove out to the farm on my own. But you knew the area well and you just, you, did you have a feeling? Did you just have a sense of duty or can you describe what, what compelled you? It's really hard to describe. It's, I did have this feeling, I've never had it before. It's just something I felt that I had to go out. I went out and started where I knew best. I grew up in that area so I unloaded the quad in our old farmyard drove on our own, kind of reminiscing. He started making loops, expanding further and further out from the property, when something caught his eye in an area that his family used to use as a garden, but was now overgrown with trees and grass. I saw it, but it didn't really register. I don't know why, but I drove around, drove outside the garden yard, and then I started making my laps outside the yards and making the area bigger and bigger. Then it was after that that I was, I was still out riding outside the yard and I was probably a couple miles from the farm now. And it just, something was nagging at me to go back. Kevin stopped the quad outside the overgrown garden area and walked into the trees. When I went back, I pulled up, or walked up I should say, and that's when I realized that it was human. So I happened to have my camera with me. I took a couple pictures and then loaded everything up and went straight back into Rosetown to the RCMP depot. Then he spent a few anxiety-ridden days waiting for the results. The thing that got me is when I come back and told the RCMP 
what had happened, then having to prove myself where I was on those days that she did disappear. It was kind of an sh initial shock, but after a while it sunk in that, yeah, I guess I kind of realized why they had to ask those questions. Through dental record comparison, police confirmed these were the remains of Carol King. It's important to note that this area where Carol was found was in a 16-kilometer radius of both her home and the slough where her car was submerged. So whatever happened to Carol happened pretty close to home. And as Kevin points out, someone would have known that the road to get to this area wasn't well used. Greg Martin, the new owner of that property, also said in interviews that this was the most isolated part of that area, and whoever put Carol's body there would have known just how secluded it was. After Kevin's tragic discovery, what had been a missing person case soon transitioned into a homicide investigation. Police start conducting interviews, and one of the first people they look at is a man named David Casey, Carol's ex. During the search for her sister, Brenda said she had given police the name of a man Carol had been intimately involved with, we later learned this was David. Did this have anything to do with that police appointment Carol had the day she disappeared? Yes. Brenda said Carol was going to make a criminal harassment complaint against David. So I want to back up here and give you a bit of the history between Carol and David. The two had met working for a steel construction company near Red Deer, Alberta, and broke off to start their own business, moving to Herschel around 2009. Their business relationship had turned romantic, but at the time, David was married. So is this like a full-on affair? Well, apparently his wife was aware of this extramarital relationship, and they decided to separate when David and Carol moved to a rural property just outside of Herschel. So fast forward about two years. It's 2011, and David buys another property just down the road from where he and Carol had been living. This is where he moves his wife and kids. So for a period of time, David is basically going back and forth between the two women before he ultimately decides to go back to his wife. Brenda says her sister was not romantically involved with David during the summer of 2011. She says they weren't living together, and the house they had shared was actually in Carol's name. It was becoming pretty clear that David and Carol were not on good terms. Brenda visited Carol in July 2011, a month before her sister was killed. And she told police that David basically stalked them the entire time. She said she saw his truck everywhere, driving past her sister's house, sometimes multiple times an hour, following them on the dirt road as they walked home from Herschel, and even parked in the bushes on Carol's property. On that particular night, she said she and Carol hid for two hours in the house while David combed the yard with a flashlight. Another night, she says David started pounding on the door, yelling that this was his property and he could come on it whenever he wanted. Did Brenda or Carol report this happening? This seems like a major change in behavior. They did, and Brenda said she was told to document everything that was happening. She said David was angry because Carol wanted to sell the house, take the money, and move back east. He even sent her a letter from his lawyer stating he was entitled to half of the house and that he had put a lien on it. 
As you can imagine, David is considered a person of interest in connection with Carol's death. He was thoroughly questioned by police, including one interview that apparently lasted 15 hours. Okay, but doesn't he seem more like a suspect than a person of interest? Can you explain why he wasn't arrested right then and there? There just wasn't enough evidence to lay any charges. You see, David had an alibi. He was in Olds, Alberta, working the day Carol disappeared, and he had ways to prove it. This is also what David told reporters during media interviews around that time. So the investigation continues, but with few other leads. RCMP send out news releases asking for people to watch out for Carol's purse and cell phone, objects that had not yet been recovered. Then, in December 2011, so this is about four months after Carol's body was found, something mysterious pops up near Herschel that becomes the talk of the town. It was a cryptic memorial, and Ash, it was so creepy. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo of it right now. Okay, so there's a cutout of a white cross, almost like glued on top of some sort of slab of rock. And someone has typed Carol inside the cross, followed by her birth and death dates. There's also a verse, and it reads, Please don't give him your hate, capital letters, He's not worth, in capitals, it. The Lord, he came and got me and took me far away. Remember, I wasn't in my body when the devil, in capitals, came to play. Then it has Y in capital letters and underneath it a photo of Carol. And guess where this was? Wasn't this near where her body was found? It was on that exact property. Journalists were flocking to it. We had all been in Herschel that day for an RCMP news conference after a suspected arson at Carol's house. And community members were telling us, you guys have to check this out. After walking up to that memorial alone in an abandoned field that felt like it was in the middle of nowhere, no sound but the wind as I read that verse aloud, this unsettled feeling just washed over me. I remember running back to my news vehicle and locking the doors. It felt like someone was out there watching me. Did we ever find out who made this memorial? At the time, nobody in town knew, or at least they didn't say they knew, who was involved. And it would be years before RCMP would reveal the answer. And we'll get to that later. So a year passes, and then another, and the public isn't getting any updates from police, and the case seemingly goes cold for five years. Little did we know, RCMP were planning an elaborate undercover investigation that would begin in 2016. Now, this is only part one of the disappearance and death of Carol King. You can listen to part two on our next episode. She's Gone is researched and written by me, Bree McAdam. Our producers are Ashley Trask and Matt Olson. Our theme music was created by Bryce Hall. And editorial assistance comes from our editor-in-chief here at the Star Phoenix, Heather Person. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
on our next episode. He talked about how he had left the garage door or the shed door half open. He described the clothing that Carol was wearing that night, all of which the argument is, how would he know that unless he was there at the time?